A reading from the Gospel of Luke. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those who live in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. The word of the Lord. Children less excited about the sermon. <laughs> Shocker. Well, good morning. Nice to see all of you. We are, as uh, is probably obvious to you, um, in the season of Advent, uh, which is the season where we are in unity uh, with the church across the world and across the ages, uh, remembering and marking and learning from the longings that were present in those who were waiting for Jesus' first coming. And also, uh, we acknowledge before God and before each other our own longings, uh, our own need for God's presence in our lives as we look for his return. Uh, His return as an answer to the prayer he taught his closest friends and disciples to pray that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. That is the future hope of... uh, the people of God, those who, who named the name of Jesus, who are a part of his, uh, his, his movement, that the rend that took place between heaven and earth is one day going to be repaired. And so we sing in Advent as we uh, put ourselves uh, in the first story, we say, come Lord Jesus, and then in our own time, uh, we, we still say that very phrase, come, come Lord Jesus. So as Chris, uh, as Chris informed us this week, we, we light the candle of peace And once again, I stand before you, and our world is in desperate need of just that. And it's almost like every single week or every other week we're together, we're we're dealing with another one of these atrocities and horrors in in our world. Another, Another shooting, another round of shootings, more of this same destruction that has become this distorted new normal, which... We have to figure out some way as human beings to say enough is enough. We struggle with how to respond. I struggle with how to respond, um, to pray, but sometimes that doesn't feel like enough to act in some way. Perhaps very tempting to just get overwhelmed by the sheer volume. We're in an age of technology where we know more about what's happening in the world than we ever have, and it can just feel overwhelming. I'm like, I'm turning this off and putting on Netflix. I'm going to numb myself with entertainment and comfort because that's far away, and it's not crashing into my world right now. But more and more that it happens, it's like, it just feels like it's inevitable that it's going to touch 
all of us. We need, as every year before, in particular in our nation and our own hearts, we need an advent of the peace of Christ, the shalom, this beautiful Hebrew concept of the shalom of God. The peace of God that doesn't just mean an absence of conflict, that means wholeness and rightness and wellness, community and joy. So, to get, to get at that, we've got a song of an old man this morning. Uh, Zechariah starts singing at the birth uh, and the naming of, uh, of his son, John. And his son, John, who's going to go on to become John the Baptizer, John the Baptist, who wanders around the wilderness wearing coats of hair and eating bugs. Uh, my kids, one of my kids' favorite stories, they're like, read the one about the guy who eats the bugs with the honey again. Like, all right, let's do it. Um, he's, uh, he's being born, and his father is celebrating the, uh, the fulfillment of a promise that was, that was made to him. This, the song is helpful because of the words. <laughs> the lyrics of the poem are helpful in and of themselves, uh, but also the surroundings, the setting the words come into are really helpful for us in this Advent season because they're, they're not coming into a setting where he's singing a nice Christmas song in a quaint, sentimental, holiday movie vibe. He, it's coming into a world that is torn. It is coming into a world that is, that is tense with strife. His song comes into a world where actually nobody cares at all about a manufactured controversy about the color of Christmas cups. Nobody cares about that. So stop acting like we all care about that. And let's move on to like the fact that people are being shot. We need an advent of peace in the world. The song is important because it has hopeful, life-giving words, but they come into a place of deep longing, a place of deep tension, a place of deep strife, a world of true violence. There are delayed promises. God has said, Certain things are going to happen, and those things seem way far off. How do you sing in those times? How do you learn to sing the songs of God when the promises of God seem miles away? That's one of the things Advent is after, to show us, to teach us. So, we meet this old guy, Zechariah, and we're given some important context uh, from him. We didn't read this in the teaching text, we just read the lyrics of his song, uh, but we, we have some important t- context for his life. Here's how he's introduced at the first part of the chapter. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron, and both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. I'm not just being mean. The Bible says he's old. Just deal with it, people. So, first First little bit, and, and you might have fly through that introductory sentence in the time of Herod, king of Judah, but this does help set a, a profound sense of the context of, of Zechariah, the, the world Zechariah's song is coming into. Herod, king of Judah, is not good news for Zechariah or for most people who are living in Israel at, at this time. As a matter of fact, um, all this war on Christmas talk that the talking heads of our media propagate to us is this huge controversy that people want to keep Christ out of Christmas. You know who we need to keep in Christmas? Freaking Herod. We need more Herod in Christmas. Yeah, put that on a cup and color it red for blood, okay? Um, 
We need Herod in Christmas because we need to remember that the world Jesus came into was at war. There was violence and conflict and strife and horror present already. And so Jesus doesn't come into a silent night at all. He comes into a world that, that is torn with violence. And it's so helpful because that's actually what our world is like. And so when we have this like magical distance between this Jesus story and our story, it's not terribly helpful. We need Herod-like characters to help us show us a dynamic equivalent to the world we live in. A world that is torn with violence. A world where hubris and pride seem to rule the day. Where obsessive consumption by some is crushing others. A world where there is conspiracies to keep power. This is the world where God's promises feel far off. Jesus is coming into a place of real brokenness, not just a vague sense of holiday magic. So Herod, just a little portrait of our Christmas friend. He was insanely paranoid. Uh, He was an extremely powerful uh, but violent leader uh, who in a crucial bit, he was born as an Edomite, so he's half Edomite and half Jewish, and there was a lot of tension because, because of that, uh, but there was a bid for power at a particular time in Herod's life, and he appealed to Rome, who was the mightiest military force of the day and had essentially the power to prop him up as a leader in the region, and so he has the military might and backing of Rome. He's able to tax uh, at an at a exorbitant amount, uh, 50 to 70% of people's income was going to taxes that then Herod would skim off, give Rome their cut. So a massive sort of system of exploitation and power in place because this man Herod uh, has is the backing from Rome. History knows Herod as a builder, um, as a credit to Caesar who gave him his power. He built this coastal um, palace called Caesarea and it was built on a swamp so to build a beautiful seaside palace on a swamp requires tons of resources tons of people literally giving their lives and their livelihood to build this tribute to Caesar in the place of God's promised land to his people so that, that that's one thing uh Herod built Caesarea by the sea. He also, he said, you know what, King David, when he was fleeing from Saul, he hid in a place called Masada, which is a plateau in the middle of the desert in Israel, and I'm going to live in luxury where David hid in a cave. So out of his own hubris and pride, he builds a massive palace on the plateau of called Masada and, and basically comes up with these brilliant uh, ways of irrigating. You guys hear a rumbling? Motorcycles? Motorcycles? Okay. Jesus is not returning just yet. Maybe he's coming in on a Harley. That's, that's a great point. Unexpected. Silent night. So, Herod and his pride said, I'm going to live in luxury where David fled. And so he built this huge palace in the middle of the desert in this place called uh, Masada. Uh, The Herodian stones that we talked about last week uh, while the kids were in here, these huge massive stones, and they were building the temple when their law said there can be no sound of a chisel on the temple mount. You couldn't move these stones with modern day cranes in some instances, and historians literally just don't know how Herod built this temple. Are you guys distracted by the noise? Because I'm not. I'm fine. Doesn't even bother me. My train of thought is rolling on like a motorcycle. (laughs) Herod was terrified, though. Even though he was a a brilliant engineer and a brilliant builder, and history remembers of that, he was also an insanely paranoid person. And uh, he regularly, if he had a sense of any threat from someone, would have them killed. So he murdered wives, 
At one point, he murdered the entire Sanhedrin, the ruling body uh, of the people that he was supposed to be caring for. He killed the high priest of Israel twice. He threw a party and thought one of his sons was plotting against him, and so he had his own son drowned in the family pool. He was such an iron-fisted and paranoid ruler that he knew he was not totally not self-aware. He knew that people didn't like him, so he said, plans for my funeral. I want you to gather a lot of beloved people together in this stadium that I've built, and when I die, I want you to kill all of them so at least someone will be sad. Merry Christmas. So, we know later in the story when the Magi come from the east and say, we're here looking for a king, and these weren't just like, uh, these just weren't scraggly people bringing J- Jesus a leather-bound journal and a bit of essential oils. They are, um, they are powerful rulers coming from the east that have the authority in their land to proclaim a new king. And Herod, who's already paranoid about someone taking over his, his crown, declares for the slaughter of the innocents. And Jesus has to flee as a refugee to Egypt in the beginning of his life. And It's just so important to remember that. We're not just gathering around singing Christmas carols. (laughs) We're talking about conspiracy and murder and fleeing and refugees and a desperate need for an advent of peace. So, Zechariah is a priest and this is his day. This is the time, this is the setting, his context for being someone who's, who's meant to remind people about the promises of God. And as the custom was, his time came up for him to go and serve in the temple. And so that's what Zechariah is doing. And um, his world is in strife. The, the general world around him is in strife. But he also has a profound inner conflict in his own family, in his own life. And it's depicted in that introduction of him. He is dealing uh, with a world in strife, but he's also been discipled by some deep disappointment. He's an old man. The time has passed for this to be possible, and he has no children. So, there's no one to carry his name on. Uh, Children very much in in this time were a social security plan, like your kids take care of you. Without children, you're you're going to find yourself uh, unable to take care of yourself and having to rely on people outside of your family uh, to to, to be cared for. And so, uh, he's certainly been... um, saying to himself, I have to shut up these longings. Maybe you can relate to that on some level. I have deep things I'm longing and desiring for, but I have no guarantee they're going to happen, and so I have to learn to numb, learn to turn down the volume on these types of longings. I have to protect myself. These things are never going to happen. So how do, I, how do we know that? I mean, he just said he didn't have any kids. Maybe he was all right with it. Well, he's so, so been discipled by his disappointment that an He's doing his ministry in the temple, and an angel shows up, says, you're going to have a kid, and he's like, nah. That's how much we can become comfortable with the pain that we know best. So listen to the incident. I, I think it's worth, worth reading. Um, it, just, it just sets the scene. It's a little bit amusing uh, if, you, if, you know, if we're just imagining this scene, but Zechariah is, uh, is there. Verse 8, it says, once Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled. Yes, 
Mm -hmm. And gripped with fear, yes. And the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. So he'd been praying for this. How long had he been praying for it? We're just going to pause for a second, the reading. How long had he been praying for this? How long had he been longing for this? The time had passed. It's now beyond the, the scope of being reasonable anymore. So for years, he'd been asking God for this thing. And now, at the most unlikely moment, with the world the way it was, this angel shows up and says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's important. To turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? And the angel's like, I'm an angel. <laughs> we'll go on. I'm an old man and my wife is well along. <laughs> he's, like, he's sort of like a little bit PC there. I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. And the angel says to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent here to speak to you to tell you this good news. And now you're going to be silent. You're done. Enough from you, Zechariah. You're going to be silent and you will, not able to be, you will be not able to speak until the day this happens because you do not believe my words, which will come, come true at their appointed time. So, I just want to call out one particular <laughs> insight from from that moment and we've already hinted at it but Zechariah has learned disappointment had so tempered his expectations for what life was like and what God's activity in life was like his learned disappointment had so informed his reality that a revelation of God in sight and in words was not enough to quite break through just think about that for a moment I want to believe, but it just seems impossible. That would be amazing, but can it really happen? I know many of you have felt that way. And so, Zechariah has this learned disappointment that's greater than God's revelation in that particular moment. And so he goes through this period of silence that feels like at the beginning a punishment or, or a consequence. But I, I want to say, I think what he receives from the angel is a very harsh gift of silence. The angel keeps Zechariah from doing something that we all do, which is tripping over our own words. He keeps Zechariah for a short amount of time, for several months, from saying things that he doesn't actually know about, which we're so tempted to do. Instead of letting his own words define his reality in this tense time where he's longing so much, instead of letting his own words define his reality, he's, he's quieted. So that he has to become a recipient of God's words to shape his reality. If there's anything that we could give as a gift to ourselves in Advent, it might be the harsh gift of silence. Just turn everything off for as long as you can stand it. And don't trip over your own words for a little while. And let your reality be defined by the voice of God. And not just your own appetites. I say that to myself so silence, which is a, initially a consequence of his lack of faith, becomes a place where his faith grows. 
We know because the very next thing Zacharias says months later is this song that was our teaching text. And he sort of explodes out of his heart in this poetic cry to God that he is a God who can be relied on, who's bringing rescue, who's bringing forgiveness, who, who makes good on his promises. So, imagine, right, this is the thing like, in a story, you just cut to the next scene, but imagine the, the days go by and he still can't speak. Imagine like two weeks go by. Like, man, it was an angel. I didn't know what to do. Now I can't talk forever. How long is this going to be? You just got to relearn how to communicate, relearn how to do life. And in that harsh gift of silence, something begins to grow. He begins to do something. Uh, he begins to rehearse the promises of God. Zach Martin, who's our Justice and Outreach Director, uh, was commenting on this passage to me this week, and he used that, that phrase, rehearsing the promises of God, and I thought, that's surely what Zachariah was doing in this time, because that's what comes pouring out of him when he can find, finally speak, and uh, Zach said, rehearsing the promises of God helped them take root in our hearts, in our minds, and then they more easily come off of our lips, uh, we're able to rest in them and understand those promises. So I'm just going to read what Zach said one, one more time because I think it's really good for us to, to become people who rehearse the promises of God. What do you do in silence? In the harsh gift of turning everything off for a, a, a while, in, in times of waiting, in times where God's promises seem far off, in times where the tension continually breaks through, where the violence continually breaks through, where it seems like there literally are no answers. What do you do? Find a place of silence and rehearse the promises of God. Because as you rehearse them, they're, they begin to renew your mind, renew how you think uh, about the world, then they, they come easily off your, your lips, you're able to rest in them, and then begin to understand how you're participating, participating in them. So, the next thing out of Zechariah's mouth, as I've said, is this resounding song of praise. He spends time rehearsing the promises of God, and then he declares them. I, I think there's something profound about that for Advent. In silence, this old man learns to sing. By rehearsing the promises of God. Now, Second Peter 1, which is one of my like, life passages for understanding how transformation works as a Christian, it, it hits on this exact reality in a way that I think is, is really helpful for us. Second Peter 1 says, his divine power, so this is a letter written to Christians by Peter who walked with Jesus, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. How on earth does that happen? Well, through our knowledge of him. So this intimate, knowing, friendship, intimacy. I said intimate twice, don't worry. In this deep knowing of, of him, who is he talking about? Of Jesus. We're given everything we need through intimate relationship with Jesus for a godly life. For a life where our character is formed to be like God's character. Where our relationships are formed to be the types of relationships where God's Abba love, uh, agape love flows, flows through us. So... We need a God, uh, all we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and good, his own glory and goodness, his own revealed character, the own go goodness of who he is in his very being. Through these he has given us, he has given us his very great and precious promises. So, Peter is setting up the promises of God as an access point for interacting intimately with the character of God. That rehearsing the promises of God is a way to actually participate in the divine nature. That's the very next thing he says. 
He has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So, what, what is being said there? This God has given you everything that you need to live a full, abundant life. He staked his integrity on that by promising, the thief has come to kill, steal, and destroy. I've come to give you life and give it to you abundantly. So how do you live an abundant life? Well, it begins through the knowledge of intimacy with, with him, intimacy with Christ. Okay, and, and, and through that, you're going to see a revelation of who he is, his glory and goodness. And then how do I actually access it, participate it? Well, I can go to the word of God and take his promises and rehearse those promises and count on them as if they're true. And in the process, my mind is renewed with those promises. They become, I'm immersed in this biblical story. I become embedded in those promises. And those are the things that come out of me. I act as if those promises are true. And in doing that, I become a participant in God's nature. His very character is formed in my character. I start to see the circumstances of my world, not just through the lens of my own reasoning, but through the revelation of God's, of God's promises. So, divine nature. What is that? Like, what's, what's true about the character of God that we would want to be true about us. Well, a perfect list of that would be the fruit of the Spirit. What's true in the divine nature? The fruit of God's very Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, self-control. These are, these are the things that are producing us. Today we lit the candle of peace. How do I have peace in my life? How do I become an agent of peace in the world? In the silence... Rehearse the promises of God. Count on them as if they're true. Live on them as if they're true. And you will, integrity of God staked on this, and increments begin to see that they are. That they are reliable. That the God who made them sticks to them. That you can pray according to them in the name of Jesus and expect movement. Expect answers. Expect presence. Not always answers exactly as our will and reasoning would desire, but true answers, true intervention, true advents of the presence of God. We count on God and his promises as if they're the most, the most true thing about us. Something we say at Trinity Grace all, all the time is what changes in you when you become a follower of Jesus? As a disciple, what changes in you? Identity, desires, rhythms. Promises about who you are. Not just how you feel or what's been said about you or what's been done to you or, or your addictions or the, the lies you've heard, but the promises of God about who you are. And then your desires. What do you want most? What kinds of things, what's the appetite of your soul for craving a good life? That begins to be changed. God's made promises about what makes for a good life, a full life, a, a life of deep, meaningful relationships with God and other people. And then a rhythm of life that supports that. God has promises in every one of those categories. Who you are, what you want most, and how you live. And by accessing those promises, by claiming them, by holding them in your, in your mind and speaking them on your lips and praying them in community with other people and writing them down in, in, your, in your journal and going back to them as if you've, after you've taken steps of obedience, you begin to participate. This is how you get peace. It begins to be created in you as a participant in the divine nature. So, back to the Zachariah story. For centuries, there had been this promise 
that God was going to send Messiah to his people. But before that, he was going to send a forerunner, one to prepare the way. That's how the Old Testament, as we have it in our, in our Christian Bibles, ends with Malachi 4. And this promise that someone's going to come in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way for Messiah. Now, centuries had passed since that promise was made. And now, after this months of silence, Zechariah begins to see, based on the promise of the angel, how his family story intersects with this ancient promise, even in the tension of their current world. And that's exactly what I think God's calling you to do in Advent in 2015. <laughs> is see how the ancient promises of God intersect with your very life in our tense and violent time. <laughs> to pray that type of prayer. And through the silence, God speaks a song into Zechariah's heart that now they're participants in this thing that God's been doing for centuries to prepare the way. And so he cries out, he sings, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. You will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people what? The knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. To shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the path of peace. Zechariah's song is honest about the condition of his world. He's honest about the condition of his own heart. But now he's been soaked in the promises of God. And he does something that a father pretty rarely he does something a bit strange for a father. He gives up his, especially in this culture in this time, he gives up his right to name his son. And he calls the son the name the angel gave him, John. So you see promise coming down to Zechariah, him inheriting this promise and then him speaking promise him, himself. In some ways that's a picture of life with God. We inherit these promises, we participate in relationship with him and we become people who speak his promises into the world. Even in the, Promises like little darts of light into darkness. So, how does he guide our feet into the path of peace? That's what we'll end with. I think if you just, just do a basic little breakdown of Zechariah's song, you see three, three elements. One, peace with God, peace in us, and then becoming carriers of that peace, carriers of shalom. So peace with God is... is he comes to give his people the knowledge of salvation. So he's admitting this need for salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Zechariah is in the process of encountering the reality of how God brings his salvation into the world. He helps people come to know him in the different varieties and attributes of his character. To know him as father. As a father who creates and a father who makes promises and a father who says, I'm going to keep these promises. I'm going to say things like all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purposes. A father who makes promises, but not just that. A father who then sends his son to step into the story and say, there's no way you're going to inherit these promises on your own or by your own strength so I also become redeemer it's an invitation to know God as father and God also as savior and then as dear friend and you think about the trinity along those lines right the father creator holy one 
Jesus coming to show us the way of the kingdom, to announce it in his words and his miracles and his death and resurrection, maybe perhaps definitely most clearly in that. And then as a dear friend to literally the tender mercy of God, like the whisper, the quiet whisper of God in your very being, the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the community of God participating in drawing you in to being at peace with God. The whole narrative of the scriptures is there's this rend between heaven and earth. And God says, I'm going to do whatever is necessary to repair that. So the Trinity as community comes forward into our story to bring us to peace with God. So through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, right, peace with God. Now, what does that do for us? Well, if you, if you were to look at the fall in slow motion and you see this break between our first ancestors in God. And then you see a, a, a hiding that comes, an insecurity that drips into their heart, a brokenness that becomes their inheritance. Where they had life, now death enters their story. And their own understanding of their identity begins to disintegrate. Then their relationships begin to disintegrate. And then their relationship with the world begins to break down. Four relationships, God, our understanding of ourself, others, world. All four of those are profoundly damaged and broken in the fall. And Jesus, in his redemption repairs each of those. Peace with God and then peace within our own hearts and minds. To shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. Peace with God, peace in us and then for our church in this season, for you as an individual to become a carrier of shalom. How are you thinking about this next month? I gotta get to these people's house. I gotta do these travel arrangements, these plans. Not gonna be very much time for silence. Gotta get these lists purchased. Zechariah becomes an agent of God's peace, speaking God's peace into his world which was not a nice, pretty, sewn-up, holiday Hallmark movie world. It was a world like ours. I wonder if you could use this Advent season to say, God, would you, make, would you guide my feet along the path of peace? If you don't have the first two, it's really hard to be a carrier of shalom. It's, a terribly, it's terribly frustrating work. If you don't have who you are and your identity with God uh, being worked out, <laughs> and in, in your inner being, know, know who he is, he, who he says you are as the most true reality about your identity. But what would it look like, Trinity Grace Park Slope, if our feet were guided along the paths of peace? In our marriages, in our relationship with our kids, in our friendships, with our neighbors, with those who believe differently than us, with those who look differently than us. The whole, (laughs) so much of the New Testament, you know what it's about? It's letters written to communities that were, their hearts were being transformed by grace and now they're struggling to show grace to their neighbor who's different than them. And so the letters come in and they say, no, 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 this whole dividing wall between you and God's been broken down. And now this wall between you and your neighbor is broken down so that you can bend the grace you've received to them. This is Ephesians 5 and we're going to go to communion on this note. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, 
who has made the two groups one, who has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. And through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. How do we engage in a world like ours? Well, at the heart of the movement of Jesus is a man dying for his enemies. So that has to inform how we engage. How our feet are guided along the paths of peace to become carriers of shalom. The way has been made through Christ's death and resurrection for peace to be made with you, with others, and to be an agent of God's peace in the world. So I want you just to imagine what that looks like plunging into the needs of our neighborhoods around Brooklyn sustained works of kindness and generosity things like the toy driver are glimpses of what's possible and good true endeavors to say let us represent the shalom of God this residency vision that you saw in the Christmas offering like uh, imagining seriously 10 years from now when when there are 10 15 more churches in every type of neighborhood in New York City in all five boroughs led by leaders of all different uh, colors and shapes and socioeconomic backgrounds the church, this, this vision of the church that we're moving to in this city in Revelation, of people of every tribe, tongue, and nation gather before God. The dividing wall of hostility torn down. The Advent story of peace is a substantial peace. It is not a surface level holiday magic peace. It could care less about the color of your cup. It's saying Will you move out as a carrier of shalom because you've been redeemed? Your identity's been changed. You're a son and a daughter forever and nothing can change that and you didn't earn it so you can't lose it. Now move out and show that love to your enemy kind of love that that can be produced by the Spirit of God. This grace between us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to come to the table again and eat the bread and drink the cup and be reminded that you have been broken and torn apart to make us yours and then to be sent out to be broken and torn apart for our neighborhoods and city and loved ones and, and people who are strangers. I pray in the name of Jesus we would not shrink to a lesser form of our true identity as a people. That we are downstream, that we are the ones who inherit these promises in you. May we rehearse them. May we speak them over our meal tables at, at this holiday season. May we whisper them to our own hearts as we commute. May we write them in our journals and in our books. May we speak them to our children. May we rehearse these promises so that they become our reality. Would you renew our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit and make us In the name of Jesus, a people of peace in our own hearts and in our actions to our world. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Right where you are, just invite you to pray honestly how God would have you to respond to what we've heard from his word this morning. In just a few moments, I'll come and invite us to the communion table. But use this time to speak honestly to God. 
God, how are you leading me? What are you saying to me? And then be attentive to his voice.